Um, chances are you have had to survive something. Maybe pause here for a minute and think about uh, that thing that comes to mind, that thing that you had to survive. Maybe for you it was cancer. Are you a cancer survivor? If you are, you know, say, oh, right? We celebrate the fact that you're a survivor today. Maybe you've just received a diagnosis and you are just deeply in fear. Know that God loves you and that he will see you through the valley of the shadow of death. And maybe just take this moment to lay hands on yourself and ask that the Lord's will would be done. Do you know somebody who's survived cancer? Maybe you know somebody who died of cancer. Almost everybody that you know has been somehow touched by that awful disease. Have you had to survive something? How about a broken marriage? Uh, We know that, well, these days the stats have gone down a little bit. In a previous generation, it was about as high as 50, sometimes 52% of marriages in the Canadian and North American context that end in divorce. But um, it's gone down into the 40s or so, which is something to celebrate. But there's a very good chance that some of you watching today have been touched by divorce. Maybe you have suffered a broken marriage, or maybe you grow up in a broken home. Did you have to survive a difficult childhood? I know that it can be difficult sometimes, especially listening in preachers. Um, a lot of preachers come from preachers' families. Uh, the family business tends to work its way down through the generations. And so sometime I have been guilty of having a preacher's son's bias where I am not as connected to uh, the suffering that some of you perhaps are more closely connected to. I come from a great family. I did not have a difficult childhood, and yet I'm constantly aware of the fact that for many of you, your childhood um, left much to be desired. Are you the survivor of a difficult childhood. Um, Have you suffered through the death of a loved one? I buried somebody two weeks ago. It was so far, thanks God, the only uh, COVID-19 era funeral that I had to do. But, uh, you know, funerals are never fun. Death is never fun. It is always um, earth-shattering. It is always life-changing to stare death straight in the face. Maybe you have survived the death of someone very close to you. Maybe you're watching today, and that's you. Maybe you are right now um, kind of in the midst of of the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe you have a loved one who's about to shake off their mortal coil, uh, and maybe death has got you in its grip, and you are very, very afraid. Uh, Just let me speak the love and the comfort of God over you today. I want you to know that uh, Jesus specializes in taking strolls through the valley of the shadow of death, and it doesn't scare him at all. So you need to fear no evil, just like the psalmist David said. Know that God is with you even in the valley. Perhaps you've had to survive the collapse of a business. I um, suffered a massive career collapse uh, two years ago now, and so I can identify with what that feels like. Maybe you're just um, struggling to survive your own nagging imperfections, and me and my brother Devin said, amen, right? We are struggling constantly to overcome our own nagging imperfections, so let's talk for a minute, because we're here anyway about some of my nagging imperfections. Um, I am never going to be the nicest person in the room, never. Doesn't mean I'm not trying. I'm always trying, but I am never going to be the nicest person in the room. I am always going to have a little bit extra around my midsection. Are you going to get a cut? Devin's going to get a cutaway of my midsection. Just check. Just this is for your viewing pleasure. I'm the. I'm sticking it out on the genie, right? Do I look different to you? I'm always going to have a little extra around my midsection. That's how I'm built. I'm built to be a linebacker, to run 10 yards and hit somebody. And so every time I see somebody who's naturally built like Brad Pitt, it makes me a little bit sad. I am imperfect when it comes to the svelte midsection category. Um, I'm never going to love meetings. Just never going to happen. I have to work really, really hard to um, more than tolerate what I consider to be a meeting that is less than 
100% uh, productive. And I know that that is a character flaw. Also, I have to admit it, I just plain don't like pate. Can I get a witness? I'm, anyway, I, like, I don't want to offend you if you love pate, but I'm going to offend you if I say what I really think about pate. So maybe we'll just move on. I just, I just don't love pate. What can I say? I, I don't like brie. Brie's weird to me. It's like, you know, I, anyway, there's lots of things I don't like. I'm basically a simple man. Um, and I don't like these things because I am not perfect. I'm out here just trying to survive my own imperfections. How about you? As I talk through my <laughs> laundry list, and this is just the garden variety, or as I talk through my laundry list of uh, imperfections, where you may be thinking about some of yours, that's the whole point. I want to invite you to think about the fact that you are less than perfect. What are you trying to survive today? Can somebody say the coronavirus shut down? I mean, we have said this a few times over the course of our online time together. Right here at the top of my sermon, it says week 14. Can you imagine if that first week that the email came, that they were extending March break by two weeks, if they had told us then that this would be a 14-week process? I mean, Lord have mercy. Has it been difficult for you? Have you been noticing people's emotions um, fraying at the edges over the last three to four weeks? I could literally tell when in the context of my social network, um, people's joy began to be replaced by anxiety. I could tell when people's peace began fraying at the edges, and I sensed it in almost every interaction I had in the wider world. It has become a bit much. We're just out here trying to survive this coronavirus shutdown. Now think, perhaps, about those who have suffered acutely during this pandemic and what it must have been like for them to try and survive these difficult days. Here's the anchor question for today's sermon. How do we survive the ups and downs of life? How do we endure? Because, you know, non-svelt midsections aside, you are going to have to endure some things in your life. There is no way around it. How do we endure? Well, I have five answers for you out of James chapter 5. This is the end of the book of James. Hope you liked it. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. (laughs) Strong words. I referenced this last time I was in James. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers Who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of Shavuot, of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until it receives the early and the latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider them blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my sisters, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. 
Is anyone among you suffering? Let them pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let them sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise them up. And if they have committed sin, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man just like us with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, my sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings them back, let them know that whoever brings back a sinner from their wandering will save their soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Cool chapter. Almost every chapter in James is cool. Uh, It is such a practical and kind of in-your-face book. Um, Practical and uh, diligent people tend to love the book of James. James, I told you off the top of the series that it's my wife Nikki's favorite, favorite book. James chapter 5, here's the big idea for this week, Um, survive it, enduring life by acting right. So this is very James, this is very Jewish. If you were to ask, you know, an elder Jewish statesman, someone who knew and loved the Lord, uh, so Rabbi James, uh, how should I go about surviving my life? Do you have any secrets on how I might endure this life in the Shadowlands. And he would look at you and he would say simply, just do the right thing. Just do the right thing. From a Jewish perspective, it's very simple. Just do the right thing. Put simply, act right. Now, as Jesus followers, we can't just take that Jewish perspective, just act right, fulfill the law. We can't take it at face value. We need to superimpose over it the work of God in Christ. We need to lay over it the reality of what Jesus accomplished for you and for me at the cross. And so we come to the idea of doing the right thing through the lens of doing so out of love for Christ, who died in our place for our sins, setting us free from the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever, so that we can become free in him to do the right thing. Just do the right thing. Okay, how? How can I act right? I got five ways for you to act right. We can act right, point number one, by living simply with no hoarding or oppression. This, uh, of course, comes out of verses one through six, which are the very stern warning to uh, the rich in the Galilean region. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. And it goes on to talk about the wages of the workers that they've held back by fraud are crying out against them and the cries have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And the implication is that the Lord of hosts is about to come back and put a whooping on them for acting evilly. So that is the stern warning to the rich. Um, I have always been deeply troubled by this passage in James 5, even from my years as a teenager, wondering if that applies to me. Am I who he's talking about? Am I the rich? Now, this is um, nuanced territory, so I want to invite you to receive it in a nuanced way. At the end of the day, when it comes to the injunctions, the stern directions that we find here in James chapter 5. Each of us have to receive that by the power of the Spirit and walk it out in accordance with our conscience 
as we walk with Jesus, as we are being filled with his Holy Spirit. So I don't want you to take everything I say as a, you know, one-to-one, oh, Todd says this, therefore that. Okay, I'm going to preach it like I see it, and I want to invite you to ask God to reveal to you that aspect of what we're exploring that is for you today. Because I can't guarantee that everything I'm going to say is for you, but I believe that at least some of what I'm going to say is definitely for you today. Am I the rich? Well, it depends on your perspective. Uh, to the families in Carmenbajo, Ecuador, who we are fortunate to be able to support, yes, I am rich. My house, my cars, my lifestyle, my income, to them, I'm a rich person. Compare me to, you know, I don't know, Bill Gates. I am not a rich person. So who's rich? And how do we go about measuring richness versus poorness or wealth versus just average everyday Jonas? Am I the rich who James is talking about here? No, I'm not. Okay, so put at like face value, James is here talking about the rich landowners in Galilee. Okay, so the disciples of Jesus were all Galilean. That's where they'd grown up. They lived there. They were familiar with the geopolitics of the region. And most of the land in most of the Galilean region was owned by a very small number of wealthy landowners. And they, in addition to controlling that land, of course, they controlled the work of most of the people because most of the people worked in agrarian type work. Okay, they were involved in work that worked the land. They were farmers. They were fishers. They were involved in the land. And so if you controlled the land, you controlled the workforce. And therefore, if you controlled the workforce, you controlled, to large extent, the everyday lives of the everyday person. These wealthy landowners had lots of possessions. They had lots of power, and therefore they had lots of of control. So in its original context here, when James is um, speaking so sternly to the rich, he is not, from the way I read it, speaking to the average working person. So if you, like me, are an average working person, the, the, the blunt edge of James' ire here is not directed primarily at you. It would be directed at some, I would say in our culture, captains of industry. Uh, It would be directed at some unrighteous business owners. It would be directed at um, lazy trust fund babies. It would be directed at um, Wall Street tycoons who run roughshod over the populace in their unending quest for wealth. It would um, be directed to celebrity culture and for all those who are trying to buy into the trappings of celebrity culture to somehow make themselves seem more impressive than they truly are. So these are the modern day equivalents, as I see it, of the rich that James is here speaking to, not the average everyday working person. But you knew there was a but coming. Here is the but. In our, I think it's very clear that in our ever um, prospering Western capitalist system, you, like me, um, may have adopted or be aspiring to some of the affectations of the filthy rich. Are you saying amen? Could you admit it? If it's not you, you know somebody who is busily aspiring to the affectations of the filthy rich. If they can't have the bank balance of Jay-Z, they want to look like him. They want to drive a car like him. They want to have a wardrobe like his. Um, And much of the wretched excess of our materialistic culture is built upon the backs of the average everyday working person aspiring to appear like one of these wealthy people. 
So in that sense, though the blunt trauma of James' warning to the rich here is not necessarily for you if you're an average working person, um, you may have bought into the lie. You may, in fact, be doing things to try and position yourself like one of these people who is getting rebuked. And here are some of the reasons that they're being rebuked. Verse 3, you have laid up treasure in the last days. In the original language here, this reads, ye placed unto morrow. So literally, you have taken this wealth that you have accumulated it, and you are not using it for God's glory, your joy, and the good of the world in the now, but you are setting it, setting it aside for tomorrow. This is huge for the average working person in our culture who spends quite a bit of their time obsessing over their retirement funds, obsessing over their investments, making sure that they have enough set aside for retirement. Now, I'm not a complete radical. I'm not suggesting that um, that is foolishness. I am trying to do the same, Um, not because I plan ever to retire, but because I think at some point in my 80s or my 90s, we may be so old that we can't work anymore, and we will need some money to help us live until such time as God takes us home. This, however, is very different than the average working person who is living for retirement. If you have bought into the lie of leveraging your days to do everything you can to get to the point where you can quit working, I just want to say that that's not a gospel point of view. Okay. The gospel point of view is God exists. He made you to be his friend forever. And he has designed you to do something to bring him glory, to bring you joy and to change the world. And so I don't know why you would ever stop doing that thing that God has called you to do. So have you been guilty of laying up treasure in the last days, placing unto morrow? Here's the simple way of asking it. Are you fixated on safeguarding your future for yourself? Or are you fixated on partnering with the power and the way of Jesus right now? Don't miss this point. It's very important. Okay. Are you laying up stores for a future that you may never reach? Or are you putting all of your energy into partner, receive it, into partnering with Jesus right now? How different would your life look if you saw as your primary objective, the goal is to partner with Jesus right now? If even listening to me preach right now, you know that your life would radically change. If you did that, that means this is a word for you and you need to make that change. If you want to act right, embrace more of a right now kind of ethic. Okay, the Bible's clear. It's foolish, man. You're going to buy and sell and go to a town and trade. You might die tomorrow. Okay, if you want to act right, embrace more of a right now kind of ethic. Here's another um, complaint that James has against the rich. Verse um, 4, the wages of the laborers which you have kept back by fraud. This is a very simple point. Um, Have you been getting ahead by cheating others? Okay, if you've been doing that, stop it. Okay, I know that that may make your business a bit more difficult to be scrupulously honest at all times, but that is, what we're, is, what we're, is what's required of God's people if they are seeking to act right. If you want to act right, be scrupulously honest. And just let me say, even as a pastor, not a week goes by where I don't find myself in a situation where I have to do something that is less easy than what I would like to do because I am trying to learn to be scrupulously honest. Being scrupulously honest often makes life more difficult, but that is how God's friends act. Another accusation, still in verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. The words here are in squander and wantonness. All of us, I think, can be said to be guilty of this to at least some degree. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. 
If you want to act right, you need to live simply. How many of you are familiar with Mary Kondo? Right? Raise your hand in your living room. You know who Mary Kondo is? She's the lady who specializes in purging houses. Uh, she has a documentary on Netflix. It's pretty interesting if you're into that sort of thing. My wife loves it. We watched episode after episode, and I was grateful to watch her eliminate my many black t-shirts. Uh, the idea is simple. You take everything from a particular room and put it in the center of that room, and then you take everything that you've put in the center of that room and you look at it. You hold it up and you look at it. And you ask yourself this question, does it spark joy? Does it spark joy? If it does, you keep it. If it doesn't, she does this really interesting thing, kind of rooted in Eastern mysticism, where she thanks it um, for its good service, and then she sets it aside. Does it spark joy? I love to say that all truth is God's truth, and I think that Mary Kondo is actually onto something here. I would suggest to you the following when it comes to figuring out what things it is okay for you to own and enjoy as one of God's people. Consider everything you own and ask yourself, does it spark worship? You're welcome. Does it spark worship? What does that look like? When you engage with that thing, does it immediately lift your gaze to the God of heaven who made that thing such that you find yourself almost involuntarily giving him praise for that beautiful thing that he made that you are so graciously able to enjoy. And you can reduce this down to simple things like oatmeal with blueberries. No joke, when you learn to invite this kind of godliness into your life, you will find yourself blessing the God of heaven because you are so privileged to eat this beautiful bowl of oatmeal with fresh Ontario blueberries. This is what it means to spark worship. If you own anything that does not spark worship, my pastoral suggestion to you, get rid of it right away. Why should you own something that doesn't lift your gaze to the God of heaven? Does it spark worship? This is a very good guideline, rehaving things. Also, be very careful with the concept of self-indulgence. In the original language here, self-indulgence is wantonness. And let me just say that this is the point that scares me the most. Because we live in a society that is radically obsessed with self. Self-indulgence is wantonness. So here's the hard truth. It's a hard truth. I'm going to try and preach it calmly. I'm feeling very calm and happy today, actually, so this shouldn't be a struggle at all. Here's the point. It's a hard point. A life oriented first and foremost around self is not only a waste of a life. It is antichrist. Okay? Strong words, but I believe every word of it. If your life is exclusively oriented around yourself from a Jesus-loving perspective. You're not only wasting your life, but you are inviting the spirit of Antichrist into your daily rhythms. If you want to act right, stop living primarily for yourself. That's such a simple take-home point. Like, you could apply that to your life and change your life this week. You want to act right, stop living primarily for yourself. And point number two, uh, stay patient because we know that God is Good. This comes out of uh, verses 7 through 11, and I love verse 7 where he encourages us to be patient because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Be patient, therefore, sisters and brothers, until the coming of 
the Lord. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Here it is from the original language. Um, Be far-feeling until the presence of the Lord. So let me talk about the second part, and then I will talk about the first part. Be far-feeling until the presence of the Lord. So strictly speaking here, presence is the word parousia, which means the second coming of Christ. So James is literally saying here, be far-feeling, be patient until the parousia, until the second coming of Christ. But the translators rendered it as presence in the English translation, and that evokes for me the following line of thinking. Um, Look, we don't know when the parousia is going to happen. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. So until such time as he does, so until the last trumpet shall sound, what are we to do? In the in-between time, however long it is, between now and the parousia, if you're looking for some help, the presence helps. Somebody shout! Okay, the presence, receive it. The presence of God helps. I know that some of you are feeling the presence of God move into your room right now. I'm feeling it here in this room. Okay, the presence of God helps. Be far-feeling until the presence of the Lord. If you want to act right, practice the presence of God. Okay? Practice His presence. How? Prayer, Bible reading, worship, regular times of silence, Sabbath, listening to the Lord. Practice the presence of God. Of Lord. Now a word on patience. The, the word patience here is far feel. This is my favorite point in today's sermon. You know I always have a point that for me is the favorite. This is my favorite point in today's sermon. Um, be far feeling until the presence of the Lord. Practice patience. Far feel. So what is James saying? He's saying if you want to act right, m- don't miss this. Move your emotions from the now into the future. Okay, move your emotions, what you're feeling right now in this moment, move those emotions from now into the future and reconsider them from the perspective of the future. Okay, take your immediate reaction in the moment, move it to the future and reconsider it with the macro, the big picture in mind. And what I love about the concept of macro is that I didn't make it up. Because literally here in the Greek, the word for far-feeling, listen for it, is macro-thumisate. Macro-thumisate. So here's the big take-home point. If you need patience, zoom out. (laughs) You're welcome. You need patience, zoom out. Out. When we take the very big picture into consideration, we will see our very big God at the center of that picture. And I'm here to tell you today, because I'm a Bible preaching pastor who loves you, that that God is good. How do I know that that God is good? Because I read James chapter 5, verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So he is literally referencing the story of Job and referencing the compassion and the mercy that God showed to Job at the end of Job's story. And if you don't know Job's story, look it up. It's totally awful. It's totally horrible. It ends well, but it is awful on the way there. It's kind of like the movie The Pursuit of Happiness. If you ever saw that with Will Smith, it's like the pursuit of misery for an hour and a half until the last two minutes where there's a little bit of happiness that doesn't quite erase all the misery you've just endured for almost two hours. 
Okay, that's the story of Job. And so James is referencing that story. And what I want to say to you about Job's story is this. If Receive it. If God's goodness applies to even Job's story, I'm pretty sure it applies to yours. I mean, hallelujah. Right? Those of you who know the story of Job know it's awful. And if we can say honestly that God was good to Job, then we can honestly say that God is good to you. Hallelujah. Okay, receive it today. God is good. So if you want to act right, find your way through to joy because God is good. Somebody testify, right? Find your way through to joy because God is good. And point number three, keep it real. We get this out of verse 12. Um, Do not swear, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Personally, I find it really weird that James emphasizes this like he does. Let me just pick it up here in the actual text. But above all, like he's finishing his book here. So he clearly thinks that, um, you know, just letting your yes be yes and your no be no is a pretty big deal. If you've ever wondered why, here's why. James was Jewish. Jewish people don't like oaths, right? Swearing. Why? Because Jewish people, if they ever took an oath, they always swore by God. And anybody who's old enough to know anything at all knows that we humans aren't that good at keeping our promises. And so if you made an oath to the Lord... You better keep it, because observant, practicing Jews who loved the God of the Bible were very afraid of the God of the Bible because he does not take lightly to being crossed. And so this is why James says, whatever you do, don't swear, okay, because God is not to be messed with. Like James, you and I should learn to be more afraid of God. (laughs) If you want to act right, don't mess with God. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Put simply, Devin will appreciate this. My brothers will appreciate this. Just keep it real. Let your word be your bond. I wrote this point for you. If you want to act right, act like a 90s rapper. Right? Keep it real. Just keep it real. Let your word be your bond. Okay, I am a child who grew up listening to 90s rap music, so that point is for me. And also for Chris Goodwin. Holler at your boy. Right? Keep it real. Let your word be your bond. Put simply and perhaps more biblically, if you want to act right, rediscover honor. Somebody say boom. You know? Somebody say it. You want to act right, rediscover honor. And act right by point number four, praying praising, healing, confessing, and believing. We're almost done here. Let me uh, read you verses 14 through 18. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise them up. If they've committed sins, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So, here's a couple things you got to pay attention to. When James asks the question, is anyone, the answer is meant to be obvious. Here's the answer to the question, is anyone? Yes, everyone. Okay, is anyone sick? Yes, everyone gets sick. Is anyone suffering? Yes, everyone suffers. Everyone sometimes need to confess sins. Everyone sometimes needs another lesson on true belief. Here's the point, okay? Take it all the way to the bank. This is for us. This is for us. This is for all of us. 
This is for you. This is for me. This is for all of us. So all of us, when we are suffering, the answer is to pray for divine intervention. Has God intervened in your life throughout this pandemic? He has in mine. Now, I have a fairly robust prayer life. I have a prayer list. Some of you are on it. I pray for you every day, three times a day. I've been doing this for some of you for years. And I have seen God break through. And you you better shout in your living room if you know who I'm talking about this morning. God has broken through into your life and answered your prayers. Friends, if you have not yet experienced that, press in in prayer. If you are suffering, pray for divine intervention. If you're cheerful, get your praise on. You know the thing I'm most excited about with this lockdown slowly being lifted and us going to phase two? I can't wait to have you in this room to see you sing to Jesus, to see you react as I say, somebody shout in this house. And how many of you are going to be ready to worship Jesus like you never have before, having been cooped up in your house for nigh on 14 weeks? I can't wait to see you express your cheer through the praises of the high king of heaven. Next time you have some joy in your heart, let it out. If you're sick, call the elders, which means to ask for help. Don't miss this point, you prosperous North American, right? How often have you been guilty of not asking for help? That's the point for you today. Next time you find yourself at your wit's end, unable to help yourself, which is the definition of sickness, ask for the elders, call for the elders and ask them to anoint you with oil and to pray for you. The prayer of faith will save the sick. The prayer of faith will heal the sick. So you need to know a few things here about verse 15. This verse has been um, used and abused throughout much of particularly the spirit-filled Christian tradition. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. This has led to a conundrum because sometimes we pray the prayer of faith and the sick person does not recover. And there has been a whole stream in Christianity that has taught falsely that the reason the sick person did not recover was because they lacked faith. This is an absolutely wrong interpretation of James chapter 5 verse 15. What James chapter 5 verse 15 literally means, so here it is in the English, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. It literally means this. When you work it from the original language, take into context James's overall um, point of view and his teaching and also um, mix it with some good classic Christian theology. This means the elder's faith will save the one who is sick, sometimes physically always spiritually because God is at work, particularly considering that our resurrection is on the way. Okay? You're welcome. I love you. That's why I do this work. So you will understand James 5, 15 for the first time and be set free from all the disappointments you've carried with you because you think that God hasn't stepped in when in fact he has. Somebody shout in this house. He has already stepped in. The elder's faith will save the one who is sick. Sometimes the implication is clear here in the original, physically. So yes, sometimes the prayer of faith will literally heal the sick. But sometimes that salvation is spiritual. Receive it. Sometimes the prayer of the elders will save the sick person's soul. Why? Because whether the healing is now or whether the healing is someday, when you awaken in the presence of Christ, it is God who is at work both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And your ultimate hope is rooted in the fact that your resurrection is on the way. You know that you will rise because Jesus Christ rose from death. Friend. 
Your healing is not about your faith or the lack thereof. It is the elder's faith that is operative in this moment from James' point of view. And salvation is both being saved from sickness and being saved from eternal separation from God. So salvation here for James is a both and kind of salvation. And he is crystal clear that your resurrection is your ultimate hope because God is at work. And if God is at work, this means, moving to the next point, that you should be quick to confess. Why should you be quick to confess? Because you can't fake God out. You may be lingering in sin for no reason. God knows. You can't fake him out. Also, newsflash, it's very difficult to fake out one of God's true friends. If you ever bump into somebody who's truly a friend of God, and you try to fake them out when it comes to your relative sinlessness... It's almost impossible to fake them out. If you want to act right, get out. Oh, this is for you today. Receive it. Get out from under the weight of your sin by confessing it to someone today. You, dear one at home watching me right now, you have been living under the weight of sin for years because it is unconfessed. Yes, you may have confessed it to God, but James here is saying confess it to one another. You need to activate freedom in your life by confessing your sin to someone else, to a brother or to a sister who knows what it means to be weak, who knows what it means to be loved by God, who knows what it means to be set free by the work of God in Christ. Don't walk, run today to that someone in your life and confess your weakness to them. Do it right now. Do it today. Don't delay. And then learn to believe again as we close here in verses 17 through 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. We miss this as Western Christians. Elijah is the superhero of Jewish prophets. Even to this day, Israeli school kids, non-religious school kids, sing playground songs about Elijah the prophet. That's how famous he is. So James is here invoking the most famous prophet in Jewish history. He's invoking the superhero of all prophets here. And he is saying that superhero, Elijah, is just like you and me. He pr- Receive it. He prayed the prayer of faith. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. And here's the big take-home point. This is my second favorite point in today's sermon. Then, receive it. Then he prayed again. And the heaven gave its rain. And the earth bore its fruit. Just like Elijah prayed again. You too can pray again, dear friend. Did you receive that point? Right? Have you stopped praying? Okay? Stop stopping. Which means start again. Pray again. Pray again. Then Elijah prayed again. If you want to act right, you need to learn to believe again. If you want to learn to believe again, the first step is to pray again. Boy, it's like a song. I can just bask in the glory, but I have this watch ticking in my head going, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. I don't care. Receive it. Right? Help us, Lord, to believe again. Lord, stir the hearts of your people to begin praying again. I hope to see a wave of prayerfulness run through this church in the coming years. Pray again. Don't stop believing. 
Don't stop praying. You know it. If we were meeting physically, that would be today's walkout song. Don't stop believing. Yeah! Don't stop believing. Don't stop praying. And fifth and final point, repent together. It's out of verses 19 through 20. My sisters, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings them back, let them know that whoever brings back a sinner from their wandering will save their soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So here we have the same deal as in point number four. When James says, if anyone wanders, the answer is everyone wanders. Everyone wanders. You wander. I wander. Everyone wanders. Even people you think are super spiritual, they wander. How do I know? Because all we like sheep, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. In the immortal words of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, all we. So keeping that collective thing in mind, all we If you want to act right, repent together. Do you see here the genius of James the Elder? Saying, if you see somebody who is falling by the wayside, grab them by the scruff of the neck, pick them back up, and say, it's that way. Okay? Do this for your friends in Jesus. You see them swerving to the left, grab them by the scruff of the neck and say, no, it's that way. If you see them swerving to the right, grab them by the scruff of the neck and say, stop it. It's that way. God knows you're going to need someone to do that for you at some point in your journey. Repent together. If somebody wanders, somebody brings them back. If somebody wanders, somebody brings them back. If you wander, I bring you back. If I wander, you bring me back. That's how God's family acts. We live simply with no hoarding or oppression. We stay patient because we know that God is good. We keep it real. And we are a praying, praising, healing, confessing, believing people. And we repent together. That's how we act right. That's how we survive.